All right, so here we are again. I am Hiller Latoya. I am the co I'm co-founder. What's this co-founder? Sky Gilbert is too much on my mind. I am the founder of DNA Theater, and I've been its artistic director for comfortably over 30 years. Across the table from me is Mike Reinhardt. Now, Mike is one of the core members of a collective, a theater collective, called Elephants. And uh, he's one of a core of uh, five uh, people or something like that because there is a fluidity there and, and, and there it is. And uh, why am I talking? Why, why are we talking, Mr. Reinhardt? I don't know. You wanted to talk to me about some plays, I think. Well, I'm, I'm always interested in talking with you because I think that you are just such a wonderful artist, and and the work that you do is really, really uh, wonderful and coming from me. That is saying an enormous amount. Thank you. Now, in our last podcast, which concerned Wake for Lost Time, you said something. And that was that at one point in your life, you were thinking of becoming a psychologist. Yes. What on earth made you think that way? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, well, I, I, Hillary, I, I grew up in a really small town um, with... Uh, that badly needed a psychiatrist. <clears throat> probably. It probably still does. Um, uh, I grew up in a very small town with, uh, with um, very limited access to the arts um, and, uh, and very few opportunities to actually witness um, the scope of what art could be and theater. Uh, and so, I mean, beyond my, my parents who kind of introduced me to some things... I, I didn't have the opportunity to uh, imagine or to, to uh, a career in the arts was not in my purview. Um, and so uh, as, I, as I kind of reached I don't know, maturity, as I became a teenager, as I did whatever one does when they turn 18, um, I started to wonder about what I was going to do with my life. And uh, it seemed most reasonable uh, that I work as a psychologist because I couldn't imagine going into theater. It just didn't seem like something that I could do at the time. And so I was going to be a shrink. You didn't want to become an astronaut. No, 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 no. I, I, I really liked working with, with people. Um, and I really liked speaking with people and I worked a lot with youth at the time. And, um, and so I thought that that type of work could be a space for me to, uh, do what I thought I was good at, which might be listening and uh, might be talking and might be doing things that could provide people, I don't know, it sounds trite, but some hope or something. So in other words, uh, 
you were thinking that in order that if you were a psychologist, then maybe you would be able to help people. Do some good. Excellent. Okay. Um, and, and did you do anything about that? In, in other words, did you take courses? Did you do a year of university? Or did was this a, a stillborn idea of yours? Um, I went so far as to apply to several programs and get into several programs. And then as kind of on a bet, um, I applied to theater as well and got into some of those places and thought I would pursue the bet for a while. Um, and now, 18 years later, I'm still pursuing that bet. Good. I'm glad that bet was thrown at you. It was handy. It was well-timed, I think. Today we're going to talk about a show that Elephants did at Rhubarb. Now that would be in January 2016. Yes. And let's talk about Rhubarb for a second. What exactly is Rhubarb? Um, well, I mean, uh, you've done it more than I have, but uh, in, in my experience of this, I believe, I believe DNA has done it at least several times, no? Yeah, we've done it a couple of times. Yeah. Um, I mean, my experience of Rhubarb is it is a uh, experimental festival um, that is curated by uh, one of the um, members of, uh, of um, Buddies in Bad Times Theatre, um, in this case, Mel Hag. Um, it is a place where, um, where no criticism is allowed into the space um, in terms of like a public critique of the work, but rather it is a space for artists to... Uh, pitch work, and then um, create those works specifically for the Rhubarb Festival to test their experiment um, in a space that is focused on um, experimental work and that that kind of world of the theater. Yeah, that's kind of what it was like back, uh, back in the days when DNA was doing stuff at Rhubarb. It was basically, uh, it, it, it was open to people who had never done a show ever in their lives, and it was open also to professionals, mm -hmm. and it was, uh, for those who had never done a show ever, it was like a chance to um, fall flat in their face or actually see that, wow, I came up with something interesting and people kind of liked it. Um, and it was also open to professionals who were doing... Uh, normal, ordinary, boring, staid work or and just felt this urge that they would like to do something that was a little off the wall. Yeah. Now, um, Rhubarb is also, uh, in um, uh, at least in my day, the idea was that each show, uh, what the format was as follows. Two shows, intermission. Two shows, intermission, a final show. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's not too different from that. I mean, uh, it runs for two weeks and the first week runs on the, um, uh, two shows inter, uh, usually runs, oh, how did it go? Um, there were tiny intermissions in between the shows. They had several shows in the chamber, which is their large space. And then they also had, um, some shows going on in the cabaret. 
Uh, and there was some overlap between shows. Sometimes you could e either go to the show in the chamber or go to the show in the cabaret. And then the second week of rhubarb, um, they have uh, a uh, like the same program programming structure, but different shows. Right. So basically, in my day, um, there was only one space, mm -hmm. and um, whatever, uh, and it, the shows were. Whatever shows were in week one were in week one, and then week two had different shows, and week three had different shows. Okay. So that's um, the way it was. Um, a, did you say that critics, theater critics, are not allowed? Yeah, they're not invited to rhubarb, to my understanding. Right. Um, they can come and, of course, watch, but they cannot... Uh, they cannot write about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was around at the time when that rule was put into effect. Interesting. Do you do you recall why it was put into effect? It was Sky basically felt that it was just unfair to have. Um, it kind of broke the principle of you know what I'm just going to try this thing, and then if it doesn't work out, to get crucified for it. Right. So it was like you know what, um, and it also the other thing it removed the burden of. Oh my God! The critic from the Globe is here tonight. I see. Yeah, I that that uh, that part of the festival's mandate is, I think, really important um, because it's very rare in the city that one can actually build work and not build work, build experimental work in a way where we can focus on the work and the experiment and not have to focus on, or at least not have in the back of our mind. Um, that larger structure of reviews and that larger structure of criticism where we can actually experiment within the piece of experimenting. And during my time, I found there was a reasonable degree of collegiality. Mm -hmm. Meaning, um, it's not like you wouldn't get feedback from people. I mean, obviously people would applaud loudly or almost not at all. But the point is that you would get together with other people who were... Uh, doing shows or performing in shows, and uh, they would give feedback. And so you, so I know that I ended up having some wonderful conversations with people about my own work and about their work. Mm -hmm. All right, so did I get this right, that the piece that you did was called A Kitchen Sink Drama? Yeah, that's it. Now, I did not see this piece. No. Why? Um, because it was in its first iteration. Uh, for the listeners, um, Hiller sometimes comes to my work, but um, I greatly respect Hiller's opinion, and I like things being in a state of completion before I invite him. I, I, I like it, them to be structured in a certain way. So some of my works I invite everyone to, and some of my works I'm like, I want to see how this experiment kind of uh, pans out before I kind of um, invite the, the, the people who advocate me for me uh, in my work. I guess perhaps it was nerves. Maybe it was nerves. I didn't feel it was ready yet. Well, I'm going to say that I really admire you for that because there are just people who think that um, so-and-so is fond of my work, so of course I'm going to invite them, because even if it's not very good, 
Um, they're still going to say some nice things about it and maybe even some helpful things about it and just make me feel better. Whereas I think your attitude is, I am not going, this work is not Hiller ready. I'm not going to waste his time. I'd like, when, when I have something that I, I would like you to see, um, it's often when it has reached the point where um, I'm like, myself and my collaborators are no longer able to see the holes in it. Um, when those holes are, have become obscured by us working on it and developing it, then it's so useful to have a really articulate outside eye. Um, but in advance of that, in the, in the, in the like, case of uh, Kitchen Sink Drama, there are whole, we were just trying to get a first iteration on. We can, we've all discussed, uh, the, the group has discussed the, uh, the scope of the holes in the work, and those are holes that we need to patch before we have other people articulating the other holes that we can't see. All right. So yes, it is a rather interesting position to be in talking about a work that I have not seen. However, you've told me a little bit about it and damn it, that was just so provocative that I could not stop thinking about it. So, um, wh why don't we just start by uh, me telling a, the little bit that I know. And that is that on one level, it was a very common thing, meaning um, uh, Eugene O'Neill wrote a play called Long Day's Journey Into Night. Mm -hmm. And you guys were doing the first scene, the first act, or, or a scene from the first act? We had rehearsed the, the vast majority of the first act. Great. Okay. Well... I've got to say that um, uh, Long Day's Journey is a play that I, one of the few plays I actually like, and I've seen it, and I've read it, and, and uh, uh, but frankly, coming from you, it's boring. But, <laughs> yeah. there's a, that's only one level. What's the other level? Um, okay, uh, so, you have actors on stage performing Long Day's Journey in Tonight. That's, that's, the, that's the one portion of the show. But um, when the audience walks into what uh, Kitchen Sink Drama was, was a kind of a mixture of an interrogation of realist aesthetics, um, a feat of strength, and probably at some point a joke that one of us made one day that we decided to make into a play. Um, by, uh, by a joke that one of us made one day, a joke that myself and one of the collaborators from Elephants, Thomas McKechnie, and I made over cigarettes, we thought, wouldn't it be funny to do um, a canonical realist drama that uh, was a kitchen sink drama being, kitchen sink drama being a, a, a kind of a genre, a subgenre of realist drama, and wouldn't it be funny if we um, held kitchen sinks over our heads while doing it? And we thought that that was a really good idea um, and so we told Rhubarb that that was what we wanted to do. Um, and then the piece evolved, um, because we became really, really, a lot of our work is really focused on, um, the relationship between the audience and the performance. And one of the things that fascinates, fascinated us, or still fascinates us really with realism, is when the audience is in the dark, um, pretending, sort of, 
to not be there or to recognize that there is an exterior reality that is not their own, that is on the other side of this fourth wall that they do not participate with. And we thought that that was really fun. But there's kind of um, a passive spectatorship in realism because, I mean, the audience, uh, you know, clears their throat or moves their feet or shuffles their program or whatever, and the play doesn't stop. You know, it, everybody just kind of pretends it doesn't happen. Um, and that, that, those conditions we thought re were really interesting. So what we did was um, we placed the audience under um, sound surveillance, really explicit sound surveillance with large parabolic microphones focused towards the audience. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now it's getting interesting. And you placed the audience under sonic observance. Yes. How did you do that? And what's para... Did you use the word parabolic microphone? Yes. Okay. So tell us what a parabolic microphone is and tell us how it was placed. Uh, I will do or that. Or how they were placed. I will do that to my to the best of my abilities. Um, the... Uh, you don't have to be technical. You could just say like a really high power microphone or whatever. Actually, we built, we built them. Uh, we have, um, we have a, a sound artist engineer named Michael Palumbo who's a, like a... He was, he was a genius, and he... Michael Palumbo, um, who I've collaborated with before in the past, and this was kind of his first Elephants project, and he built... Um, parabolic microphones are directional microphones, um, but really, uh, uh, really precise, really sensitive directional microphones that Michael built out of a handful of wires, um, two copper walks, like cooking walks, and uh, a handful of other things... Um, and so he, we, he built them and we would place them focused on the audience so that they would pick up where sound came from in the audience. How many? <clears throat> we only used two for that produ production. Um, or did we use four? We might have used four. I thought you said four. Yeah. Okay. So where were, so I would presume that these uh, microphones were located above the audience. Actually, they were located in front of them due to the uh, the nature of um, festival work. You have to move your set in very quickly, um, and so to hang the microphones, <clears throat> excuse me, to hang the microphones uh, in advance of every show was impractical. Uh, in so, advance of every show. Yeah. So instead, we had to kind of um, attach the microphones to uh, a, a variety of stands and then place them kind of throughout the outside of the audience. And um, how big would one of the um, uh, parabolics be? Uh, the size of a, of, a, of a cooking wok. Right. Right, you said that they, a, a wok was actually, oh, I'm starting to see a dish. Yeah. I'm starting to see a dish that, that, uh, uh, that receives sound. Yes. And a very sensitive dish. Yes. Okay. And um, and these were obviously very visible to the audience because they were at the front and sides. Yes. Okay. And though and this and they were put up during intermission. Ah, uh, yeah. Intermission okay. Shows, so yes. those who were just sitting there, who weren't going out for a cigarette, could actually see the process happen. Others who came back from a cigarette would see that. Oh, there are these walks on stands for some reason. Yes. Go on. Um, 
So the the microphones would pick up whenever an audience member made a noise, whenever they moved a foot or cleared their throat or laughed or what have you. And um, how sensitive? Uh, like if you if you if you clear. Okay, your, let me be obvious. Yeah. If I went, went, go like. Yes, it would pick that up. If you cleared your throat, it would pick it up. Um, if you went hmm. just like you cleared your throat. Yes. Go ahead. If you went hmm. Uh, Even that song. Yeah, they were really they were really well made, um, and so the moment that so we had the parabolic microphones out there, and so we had the audience under sound surveillance, um, as well hanging in the space between where the actors were doing the play and the realist set, um, and the audience were um, four kitchen sinks um, that were hung from the the grid. Uh, Full of realist dramas. They were quite heavy. They were hung on rope. Full of? Realist dramas. Books? Yeah. Okay, and how big were the sinks? Uh, Full-sized uh, aluminum kitchen sinks. Right. Yeah, standard sinks. Standard sinks. Only um, laden with books. Yes, so they were quite and heavy. And they're hanging from the rafters, as yes. it were. Um, and they're hanging, they're hanging down in between the audience and the performers about... Maybe a foot or so from the ground, they're they're kind of dangling there, um, and then we've set the lighting in such a way that the ropes that are hanging down make it look like windows into an exterior. So they kind of look like a wall. Um, so what uh, what looks like a wall? Uh, the ropes hanging down to the 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 sinks, and so uh, we, and two ropes per sink. Uh, four. They're pretty. Four heavy. ropes, one in each uh, one in each corner. Exactly. Okay. Um. And they're a foot off the ground, and are they equidistant? Yep. So it's a row of kitchen sinks, roughly a foot off the ground, suspended from the grid. Yeah. Laden with realist dramas. Yeah. Um, Not just any old books, realist drama. Yeah, really specific. You know, uh, Death of a Salesman's everywhere, and, and the like. Um, and so... The mo so we would be performing the realist play, um, and whenever the audience would make a noise, uh, the microphones would pick it up. Um, the lighting state of the of the theater would change. Um, the lights would go out on the play. Um, a light would hit the approximate area of the audience that made the noise. The performers would all stop doing the play, walk forward to the sinks lift the sinks over their heads and one performer would speak to that would choose an audience member in the approximate area that made a noise and would have direct discourse with the audience member um while the performers were doing this a clock of sorts okay slow down um because i just i i just love this so um uh, uh uh, I, I'm just going to say an audience member uh, nudges um, uh, his boyfriend and says, isn't that guy cute? And or the, whispers, <clears throat> isn't that guy cute? And the stage And changed. all of a sudden, boom! Yeah. The light's off. A spotlight? Yeah. Bright? Uh, quite bright. It was, project it was a projected spotlight. We had to use computers a lot. It's all of a sudden aimed... In the in the direction of 
the person making that comment to the boyfriend mm -hmm. and um cat and it would be a, a spotlight is a circle yeah. so it would be catching uh, depending on the circumstances three four five six people yeah. within its orbit yes okay and okay so we're at the point now where boom the lights go off and the spotlight goes on now what happens? Um, the actors would all approach the sinks and lift the sinks over their heads. They were very heavy. Um, and a clock would get projected on each chest of the actors, like kind of like a pie graph, I suppose. What's a pie graph? Um, a circle with... A oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, I thought you were talking about the, uh, uh, the, uh, the oh, mathematical symbol pie. Yeah, no. no uh, like you're talking about an apple pie. Yeah. And uh, slowly but surely, that uh, that pie graph would change color, and the audience would be able to tell that this was the amount of time that the performers had to carry the sink. Um, the performers had no idea, of course, how long this time was. It could Why? Be, uh, was one of the rules. Um, but uh, but also, there's another reason. Well, it, it would be it would be uh, because the sinks were extremely heavy. Um, and so it was a feat of strength, and knowing how long you had to hold the sinks over, or not knowing how long you had to hold the sinks over your heads, was a really important part of the actor's actor's journey and the feat of strength, and also them being honest with the audience member when they when they didn't know how long they had to be there, they really had to engage in the in kind of the game of playing with the audience. Um, and so the the audience or the performer would not know, and they would hoist the sinks over their heads, and one of the performers would start um, a conversation. Okay, now, you told me, if I'm not mistaken, that it was a computer yes. that decided the length of the, the, um, uh, the length of time that you needed to hold up the sink. Yes. Um, and the minimum would be? The minimum was like, 15 seconds. And, and the maximum? Uh, four or five minutes? Four minutes, I think? I think you told me four. Yeah. Now, um, during this time, a pie-shaped thing would be on everybody's chest, correct? Yes. yes. And isn't the reason... Okay, so tell me about the pie. Um, I, I, did it start off bright and then dissipate into zero or the opposite or you said something about the audience ah um so it would start off completely uh trans like white light and then slowly but surely it would fill in with red going around the pie until the pie was completely red um and so with that the audience could tell how long we had to hold the sinks but the performers would have no sense of how long they would have to do this feat of strength and they would not know because uh, they could the they could not see their own chest. It was being projected because they, they couldn't see their own chest because they were staring straight out into the audience the whole time. Yes. Okay. Now, um, what happened was that each performer took turns. Yes. So. Uh, you go first, he goes second, she goes third, he goes fourth. Yep. And then again, et cetera, et cetera. Every time, every time the, uh, the change was cued, every time we had to lift the sinks, um, we had, we had, you know, we, we would take turns speaking to the audience. So 
the first time, perhaps, I would speak to the audience member, and then the second time, another member of the team would speak to whatever audi audience member triggered the system. And so on. Okay. Now, um, the conversation with the audience member, um, how exactly did that happen in the sense of, like, did you, did you just pick out one person? I guess we would, we would pick out, there would be... So it ultimately would not be the, the so-called guilty party. It would be a person in the vicinity. Yeah, we couldn't guarantee it. We couldn't get the technology to be that precise. If but you'd like to. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, you pick a person. Mm -hmm. um, did you say, um, you in the green shirt? Or uh, did you just uh, look so intensely at one person and kept your gaze on them that it was obvious that that was the person who you were talking to. Yeah, we, we'd speak to them directly um, and we'd focus our gaze on them and it became quite obvious. Usually that person knew would know to answer in that moment. They'd feel the light on them. We would say something to them. If they weren't certain, we would, uh, we would you know, specify who they were. Like We're like, you know, you're wearing a Superman shirt or whatever. Right. Okay. But usually they would know immediately. All right. And so, what was the point of having the conversation? Uh, and so it was always one performer and one audience member. Yes. Um, to create a, a relationship between that uh, transcended the performance space into the audience space. To create a real human interaction between two people. Um, and probably in part, uh, kind of the, the long game of it, was to create a certain amount of empathy, um, uh, to to make sure the audience knew that they were participants in the, in this performance. What's empathy got to do with it? Uh, the performers were suffering. Um, at least once, uh, once the first couple of segments, the performers could lift the sinks over their heads with ease, um, but as each um, each segment got longer. Um, the performers would start to to suffer, um, you know. Audibly. Oh yeah, um, there was part of part of it was to. We can see their face. I'm just pretending I'm lifting up this sink and I'm going. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And then my I, what would happen is my arms would sag a little bit and I would let it down and I would go. Mm. Yes. And I would just like hold it up as high as I could, right? Yep. Um, the goal was to keep your arms as straight as possible, but eventually the weight would start to break you down. Um, the goal was also not to make any noise. Um, like, the, there was a rule where the actor wasn't supposed to make any noise, so the actor would be fighting making noise. We wouldn't be able to represent our suffering or perform our suffering. Rather, that would simply happen. Right. Inescapably. In yep. other words, it would be, you just couldn't help but go, yep. Yeah. And I'm a little bit confused back to the empathy thing. What I want to know is that when we, when we talked on the phone about this, mm -hmm. you were saying that it was, um, a, that you wanted to have a meaningful conversation. Yes. Can you define meaningful in this sense wow because uh, I'm a little bit confused I'll tell you why yeah because on when we talked on the phone I thought that you were maybe trying to find out uh, their beliefs in um, uh, 
God or fate or love or something like that. In other words, some kind of a serious issue that was more than uh, what did you have for breakfast. Uh But now you're talking about empathy, which has got to do with a serious, as I think you call it, a serious conversation about um, uh, the suffering that the sink bearers were bearing. Uh, yeah, so um, in terms of a meaningful conversation, one, one thing that we didn't want to do is we didn't want to inflict something on the audience. Rather, because, um, because we had a certain amount of time that we didn't know, we would just let the conversation go the direction it would go. And often it would move into um, more serious uh, conversation, or at least of subject matter that was more serious, um, rather quickly. There was a certain vulnerability, that the perf- <laughs> like an obvious vulnerability, that the performer had um, in, in, their, in their feat of strength that seemed to allow the audience to um, start off in something similar to small talk, but then the audience would give us a cue somehow. The audience member. Yeah. They would say, you know, something, something about my, you know, my this, my partner that I'm with, or my, I've had a really rough week, or I've done this, or done that, or done the other thing. And as soon as that piece of information fell into the air, that gave the performer... um, Something to grab onto. Yeah. And and to develop. Would ask, you know, would ask questions. And then... then Why did you have a rough week? Yeah. What happened with your partner? Why did you have that fight, etc.? And the and the audience member would 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 either a um, join us and develop the conversation, um, or b would say I, I can't or talk. Uh, or b would say I can't talk about it. But I don't recall a performer ever doing that. You mean an audience member? Uh, an audience member, rather. Excuse me. Um, and so it's very hard to put up kind of a fourth wall as an audience member to a perform to a human being that is suffering and trying very very hard to be good to you. Okay. Now Yeah, like if you know me at all, you can see what I would be turned on by this whole thing. Um Here is now a digression that I hope is apposite. There is, there was, maybe still alive, um, a psychologist by the name of Milgram who did the Milgram experiment. This was in Yale University, 1961. Uh It was inspired by the Eichmann, the Adolf Eichmann trial um, with the question of, uh, were they just following orders? Are you, do you know where I'm going? Um, just to confirm is... Le- I'll, I'll yeah. just, I'll keep I going. So. I'll keep going. Because it's a, it's really, really famous. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say it's really, really famous is because if I know about it, who knows nothing about psychology and all the rest of it, then it's got to be famous. Okay. The whole point of the study, uh, was to... Uh, figure out the obedience of just ordinary people to authority figures. Mm -hmm. And particularly in conflict with their personal personal conscience. So, there were three people 
Um, there was the experimenter, the learner, and the teacher. And the experimenter and the learner were accomplices. And the teacher and the experimenter was, were in the same room, whereas the learner was in a completely different room, next door, unseen, but heard. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, at the very beginning, cards were drawn. And by the way, um, Laura and Magda, if I'm not being clear, please stop me because I really want, uh, because we've never talked about this. So if I'm not being clear, then just interrupt and, and, and I will be clear. You've, you've got it up to this point. Okay, now, at the very beginning of the experiment, um, cards were drawn between the teacher and the learner. Now, both cards said learner, but the accomplice said, my card says teacher. So obviously the other card was the learner and I'm, and I'm probably gonna call the learner the victim. Okay, so then what happens is um, the, the idea was a test and it involved word pairs. So I don't know exactly what the word pairs were, but I'm going to, uh, uh, there were, uh, so a word would be stated and then the learner or the victim was given four um, uh, possible uh, uh, pairings. So if, just to make it very simple, I'm going to say knife, and then I'm going to say um, bathroom, floor, fork, toilet. And of course, the right answer has got to be fork. Unless you, eat in your, unless you have dinner in your bathroom. Okay, so um, the idea was that the... I'm, going to, I'm just going to say victim, it's easier. The victim basically had to press a button to say which one of the four made the correct pair. If the victim got it wrong, he would get an electric shock of 15 volts. And right at the beginning of the exercise of this experiment, rather, what happened was that the teacher was given, who's an accomplice, remember? The teacher was also given a 15 volt shot so that he knew very clearly what 15 volts meant. Okay. With each wrong answer, the dosage of the volts was increased by 15 volts. Now, you know what? I think I may have screwed up. It's the experimenter and the learn. How am I screwing up? It's the person who is 
is actually applying the volts, asking the question, saying, um, fork. He is, he is the one who's got no clue about what's going on. What is happening in reality with the victim is that no electric shock is actually applied. He just presses a button on a tape recorder, which is then amplified into the room, which makes him go, ah. With every wrong question, as I said, it's increased by 15 volts. And so we finally get to the point where the so-called victim is like screaming. After a number of increases, the victim bangs on the wall and says, I've got a heart problem. And then after that, apparently gives no more responses. Now, a number of teachers in this experiment wanted to stop at 135 volts. I don't know. Michael, can you tell me what 135? Can we just try it? Ha! <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I think that's a lot of volts. I think so, too. Yeah. I think that's a lot. And... Um, at around the 135 volt time, um, a number of the teachers uh, questioned the purpose of the experiment. And most continued when they were told that you're not responsible. And they did show signs of stress as, they, as the voltage was being up. But they did continue. Now, when they wanted to stop, the teacher was told, please continue. When that was insufficient, the experiment requires you to continue. When that was insufficient, it's absolutely essential you continue. When that was insufficient, you have no other choice. You must go on. Now, if at that point the teacher wanted to stop, then he was allowed to stop. Otherwise, the actual real stop was when the teacher ostensibly inflicted 450 volts three times. All right. Now, Michael, before the experiment, um, this guy, uh, what was his name? Milgard? Milgram. Milgram. Um, had a poll of, uh, made a poll of 14 uh, uh, psychology majors. Mm -hmm. And they basically believed that the teacher would not go beyond level three out of 100. And the average was 1.2. Right. 
Then, before the experiment, he also did a poll with 40 psychiatrists. And their feeling was that most teachers would stop when the victim wanted to be free. And after 300 votes, only 4% would continue. And the feeling was, and then some expressed that only 10% would go all the way. So guess what happened? What? 65% of the unwitting teachers administered the biggest 450 volt shock. They were often in real discomfort, sweating, stuttering, uh, trembling, groaning, uh, nervous laughs, fits. But that is what actually did happen. Now, these, this experiment has been duplicated again and again and again and again with essentially the same results. And guess what, Magda and Laura? Essentially no difference between women and men. So, so much for you gals being part of the fair sex. Um, after the exper after the, um, after this thing, I don't know whether it's a month or six months later, the people who were in the original experiment were, uh, consulted or, and, um, 80% of them said they were glad or very glad to have done this. Some expressed their thanks. <laughs> Your turn. I see you've been scribbling. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. Uh, I can answer this question, or at least the question that I seem, that seems to be revolving around the Milgram experiment, but I have to take a bit of a road to get there. Um, first off, just to, to kind of finish the, finish articulating the project. Um, the performers, of course, would speak to the audience when they were when they were holding the sinks, and then when the timer ran out, they would return to performing the realist drama. So there was an ebb and flow, where uh, the next moment an audience member made a sound, of course the lights would change and the performers would go back under the sinks, and then they would one of them would speak to the audience, and then they would finish and continue performing the realist drama, and then there would be another sound, and so on and so on and so on. Um, so. Eventually, um, the audience figured out the game that if they make a sound, uh, then, the then the lighting state changes. And one of the things that was very important to us was everything, uh, the system of sound, of sound pickup to lighting stage, uh, state change to the amount of time on the body was all automated. There was not a human operator to any of this. It was all a computer system. It was a system outside of the co-corporeality of the performer and the audience. Um, so this game would happen. The audience would trigger the system. The system would do what the system does. The performers would get under the sinks. The performers would talk and suffer. Um, 
eventually the audience would figure out the game. Um, and when they first figured out the game, and this was one of the flaws of this version, this iteration of the show, when they would figure out the game, then they would choose to actively trigger the system. Um, uh, the audience had a couple of... Sorry, I'm going to say this. I'm just, I just want to digest this. So what you are basically saying is that when the audience figured out the rules of the game, night after night, they would, there were people in the audience who would actually trigger, they would make a sound that would trigger your suffering. Yeah, um, but also the, the performer engagement with the audience was extremely charming. And it was funny. The audience found we're, we're relatively charming. And uh, the audience um, found the situation funny. It was, it was a, so it was an interesting thing because um, what it, what it, when they figured out the game, the audience member fundamentally had a choice as to what they wanted to see more of. Uh, whether or not they wanted to be complicitly silent and and perform silence if they if they if they if the whole audience figured it out they could agree to be silent and watch Olive O'Neill's masterpiece. <laughs> um, uh, of course, that that was not going to happen. So, uh, and many people in the audience found it more interesting to be in a state of direct engagement with the performer and watching the performer do rather than watching the drama of the play. The drama of the performer doing something very, very hard was much more compelling. Um, so the audience started to actively trigger the system. Um, the problem uh, was, of course, we were being very, very good to our audience members when we were underneath the sink. We were being extremely kind. This is one thing Extremely that, kind. Yes. Um, no, we weren't performing. We were just trying to be good human beings to the audience member before. Okay, that's very important because we haven't talked about this at all. So in other words, you you would never, ever, ever go something like, why on earth did you just make that chair movement and make... No, we're, we're not very good at alienating our audience. Um, it's something that our company is realizing more and more. Um, and it's something that doesn't Yeah, I was sorry to interrupt you, but I was going to say, yeah, time for you to learn. <laughs> go on. Now, uh, for us, what is very important is for the uh, for people to have, particularly in this day and age, and that's a broad general statement, but um, for people to have spaces where they can be together um, and they can ask questions together and explore potentials together. Facebook ain't enough? No, it's not enough. Um, so that is something that is a major part of our theater. Um, and so the unfortunate part of this project was that it was not quite long enough. Uh, the, the step it got to was the audience would figure out the game, the performers would go underneath the sinks, and we would have the fluctuation between the realist drama and the performers being under the sinks and the direct discourse, and that was all very fun and exciting. Um, this project, the next iteration, probably needs to be about 20 minutes longer. Uh, just to be clear, the um, rhubarb show limit was 25 minutes. Yes. So the first iteration was 25 minutes. Yeah. And in fact, when the 25-minute mark arrived, then everything absolutely stopped. Yep. Whether same. you were in the middle of holding up a kitchen sink or whatever it was, just all lights out, show over. Yep. Everything went black and we left. And now what you're saying is that you'd like it to be a 45-minute show. Yep. Um... The, so the, the, the big goal 
Um, you were talking about, so you were talking about the Milgram experiment. Yes. So, so this is where this show starts to deal with the Milgram experiment. Um, the Milgram experiment deals with kind of a deep programming in people. Um, the civilizing process. People respond to authority under certain conditions and will actually forego their humanity because an authority figure or the civilization process says, do this, do that, do the other thing. It is okay to do X or Y and people will do it. Um, what we wanted... Sorry, to interrupt you. And particularly when it's you don't bear the responsibility. Right, 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 right. Um, it removes the responsibility from the person. It's the party it. that repair. It's the party that bears. It's the Nazi party who bears the responsibility. It's the commander in chief. It's the whatever. It's the whatever. You're not responsible. Just do it. No, you're you're a medium in a larger system. Um, the system is the institution upon which uh, that bears the weight. You are simply just a facet of that thing. Um, and of course, in the theater. You know, the way that we watch theater, the the complicity of sitting and pretending you're not there, the uh, unwillingness to articulate how you feel about something in the audience, the audience imagining that they are not a participant of the thing or are not um, engaged with the thing. Um, that they are not, that these are not human beings that they are being, that they are engaging with in the theater is is a misnomer. Um, Sorry, say that again, because I think you said something really critical there. There is something about that what audience members are doing are not actually really engaging with human beings. Is that what you said? I think so, but to a, to, to a large, like, I mean, I mean that, that an audience can witness something on stage, something horrific, and can choose to sit in silence and consume that thing without having a reaction or without being able to um, potentially disrupt it or transgress it because the system is so big you can't talk in the theater, you can't get up in the theater, you can't leave in the theater. All of these things are laid down for us. But Reinhardt, do you realize what you're saying? And that is like such a crucial tenet of war. I mean, the Vietnam, uh, the American army was basically told that the Vietnamese are not real people. They're, what were they, gooks or something like that? I mean, this is the entire, that's such a critical thing, is that what, what were the, the people, the, the, the things that you are killing in Vietnam are not really people. I mean, the, 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 these people dying of AIDS are not real people. I mean, fuck me, they're homosexuals, right? I mean, they're a subhuman species. I mean, I mean, and besides, I mean, like, you're black, okay? So, I mean, you're not really a person, are you? Like, you've just hit on something so important, according to me. Um, and, of course, we all know um, that that's not true. We know, we gotta know, people gotta know, um, and that it's harder than that. Yeah, you and I know, but I mean, the critical thing that you said is people gotta know. Our hope with the piece, um, our hope with the piece, uh, in the longer iteration of the piece, um, is that people who are placed in a situation where they have a structure 
telling them that they can't engage, that they can't be with the other people, that they can't transgress a space and do what they think is ethical, would eventually get pushed to the point that an audience member... An audience member. Yeah. Would stand up out of the audience, get out of the audience, walk down into the main space, and relieve the performer's burden. So that maybe, just maybe, we could rehearse something better than this. I'm going to try and keep my mouth shut other than to say I think you're going in the right direction because I do I think your piece is flawed. Yeah, that's But I mean the conception is flawed because I think honestly that there needs to be some kind of um I said I was going to shut up. Shall I just shut up? No. Okay, I all right. Thanks. Um uh, I think what needs to be worked into the game, into the rules, is some kind of a blowback, is, is some kind of an ability on the audience's part, on some member, on some person's part to efface the sound that was just made. Or, as you said, to actually come and say, I'm going to hold your burden. You talk, I hold the burden. Hmm. Or... Uh, some ability to cancel the um, uh, event of the that triggered the noise. Sorry. In other words, uh, I'm not being clear. What I'm really trying to say, I think you understand. I'm basically trying to say that um, uh, uh, there is sound. Mm -hmm. It triggers this whole thing of lights out, spotlight, start lifting the uh, horrible kitchen sinks. But there, it, I personally would love to see some kind of a rule that allowed another audience member to interfere and put a stop to it and go back to the O'Neill. I don't know if we have that kind of flexibility in life. Um, maybe we do. I don't know. Um, I think one thing that seemed important as we explored this first iteration, um, a, a, a system, something that, that a, a system of power is a really, um, large and pervasive apparatus that has been built for a really long time. Time um, immemorial. Yeah. Or at least since the enlightenment. Before, uh, way before. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to step around that such an apparatus or to transgress such an apparatus, even in something so small as a theater performance, is rare and very difficult for people. Um, to... For one of them to do it once and for the show to show that that is an extraordinary event, even in something as stupid as getting up from an audience and relieving a performer's burden. When if, if the audience ever did this during Kitchen Sink, and this now ruins my show every time I do it, if an audience member ever got up, left the audience, 
got down and relieved the burden. Went into the performance space and took over a sink. Yep. Walked through the fourth wall. The show just ends. Because the show doesn't need to do anything else. It's already done the biggest thing. It has rehearsed what could be possible. I'm going to disagree with you, but I don't have really good grounds to disagree with you. Okay. I'm... I'm... I understand exactly what you're saying, and I'm very taken by it. And I'm actually touched by it also. But I, I, I honestly think that... that you can go further. That, that just because one single soul has the, shall we call it, temerity to interrupt a performance and take on the burden. I mean, my God, I'm just thinking right now, the white man's burden. Didn't Kipling write a poem called The White Man's Burden? Anyway, um, um, I, I'll say it again. I'm touched by what you just said, but I think that there is more room to explore. I don't think that one single solitary person doing that act of what you call transgression correctly um, would actually, actually I'm going to go back and say it's unfortunate that such an act would be considered transgressive in the theater, but um, um, yeah, um, I do think that there's room for exploration there. I, meaning, I think, I, I, I think more thought can be applied to this whole thing. I think there's certainly a different level, um, but I think you devalue the um, uh, what it means for a person to the power of a non-performer to step into an aestheticized space and take the burden of being the performer. Um, how big a political act such a thing is. And I, 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 yeah, it's an aesthetic act, and yeah, it's an artistic act, and yeah, it's a social act. Um, but in relation, yeah, it's all of these different types of acts, but in relation to um, when transgressing a system, um, when transgressing a rule, um, to do that not only as a person who's transgressing a rule, the audience member doesn't just transgress the rule anonymously. We transgress rules anonymously sometimes, but no, they're transgressing the rule not only as as someone who transgresses a rule, but as an aesthetic act, as a as a as public a act as also. a public act in a performance space. They're deciding to step outside of what they are and become something else. The audience member chooses a transformation there, and that transformation is witnessed. Yes. And I think it's the witnessing of the transformation that is perhaps even more powerful. Um, than to have its repetition, yeah. for example. That is what I wonder. But of course, this is an experiment, so there are, <laughs> we have right. to think about okay. it. Okay, so anyway, it's, it's something to... Um, I'm just going to say that I think I've got a good point, and I think you've got a very good point. I think we both have really. I, I think this is this is a first iteration of a piece. Yeah. Um, so what is exciting is to have an array of different viewpoints and possibilities for the piece, and being like, what do we do? 
next, you know, um, to have your notice to this could be possible and to have, you know, like kind of the, the previous iteration of the piece. And this is how theater grows. You know, we take all of the different viewpoints and then we say, okay, in a collective process, here are the possibilities. Which road do we follow? Um, or what does it mean to follow this road versus that road? Or can we follow both roads? Or can we do an iteration where we follow one road and do an iteration where we follow another? I mean, um, the problem with experimental theater, and it's not a problem, but it's the problem of experimental theater, is that since we don't know what the, how the experiment is going to work until the audience arrives, part of the goal of the, of the creative team is making multiple iterations. Um, so, or exploring different iterations at different times with different goals because different, because the audience is going to change the thing inevitably. You know, I hate to say this, but I'm going to. And that is that um, I'm actually now fighting for your point, okay? And that is that ultimately the civil rights movement in the United States was of course caused by a number of things, but ultimately speaking, it was one woman who refused to sit in the black section of a bus that triggered an outpouring of and a huge enlargement of the whole civil rights movement. So that's, I'm fighting on your side right now, that one is enough. The individual but I'm not going to stay on your side for necessarily too long, but I thought I would just point that out to bolster your um, uh, your take on it. It is amazing what one person can do. Yes. Um, what I find so interesting about this whole experiment is, uh, meaning the experiment of, of uh, whatever the guy's name was, um, that there seems such a disconnect between what you think you would do under a certain circumstance and what you actually do when placed in that circumstance. Absolutely. I, I think it's, I think it's very easy um, to do a lot of things when we have permission to do those things. Um, uh, and yeah, that's, we're capable of, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what people are capable of. I don't know anything about people. People are great. Um, oh, people are, uh, okay. Wait a moment. I can't let you just go by with that. I don't know what people are capable of. People are great. Yeah, people are great. They basically kill, maim, rape, slaughter, uh, pillage. Yeah, people. Yeah, Reinhardt, people are great. But they're, yeah, they do that those things. But they're also capable of a whole bunch of other things. Um, and I don't know how uh, art responds to that. I, I feel like it's part of art's job to respond to that. Um, how do we let people do not necessarily the bad things they want to do and not teach them. I mean, to not, not teach them 
uh, not be didactic in the way that, you know, old art or art in different periods has been a mode by which to promote certain viewpoints on civilization, but rather just to ask questions and create spaces where the audience can look at the world and say, well, yeah, this thing that I know and I know that I know, um, you know, I know it, but uh, are there other possibilities, other other ways of doing things? Um, but sweetheart, there's always other, alter there's always alternatives, there's always other ways of doing things. Yeah, but if nobody... I mean, just think about, oh, I'm just, just uh, okay, uh, I'm just gonna, just think of the many ways that I can kiss Magda. Uh-huh. Not that I've ever kissed her. But you know what I'm getting at? It's just like, what are you talking about? There, that it's, uh, Sorry, I just feel like you're stating the obvious, which is, of course, there's alternatives. Of course, there's there's like all kinds of routes, all kinds of roads to... But do people see those routes and roads? When people see ways of doing things, are, are those things visible to people? Um, are there... Uh, means by which people can, oh, I'm being vague and awkward. Um, You're excused. Thanks. It's not like I'm not ever vague and, you know, inaccurate. I guess the thing I wonder is, does art give us a chance um, to ask the questions that maybe we were too lazy to ask previously? Does art give us the chance to ask questions that, not we were too lazy, but that art, art um, takes things that are concealed. It makes them visible. Um, even McLuhan kind of, uh, Marshall McLuhan kind of gestured towards that. Um, uh, so often possibilities do not seem evident. Um, you know, does art have a, uh, a responsibility to at least, um, uh, open up or unconceal is unconceal a word? I don't know, Hiller. You're a better writer than. <laughs> There's no reason unconceal is not a word. Uh, can art unconceal um, some of the avenues that don't seem apparent? Why shouldn't it be capable of doing that if that is the artist's intent? I think that needs to be artist's intent. That's not, I, you know, that's not in my purview. That's not in, in that's not, that, I don't think of art in that way. Um, I've got a few more things I want to ask you. Okay. We're getting to the end of this then. Mm -hmm. The first thing I'm going to do is make a sound. Yes. It's called opening a can of Pellegrino. I hope that does not result in magically a kitchen sink descending ah. from sadly no all right and guess what just because i said that this guy actually refused now it's cooperating um we're not going to spend much time at all on this but i'm just going to throw you out a hypothetical uh, uh question okay okay so yesterday canada declared war on china and you are of the age. I'm not, but you could be drafted. Yeah. Uh, would you do it? No. You would be a conscientious objector? Yes. 
Good. We don't didn't have to deal with that question for long, did we? Yeah. Well, here's a drink, and I'm going to say cheers. Cheers. So there's no question. There was just like you didn't have to think about that at all. Nope. So. When, when you have these people in the audience knowingly make a sound in order to have you go, have you guys go through your ordeal, mm -hmm. what does that make you think? Do you, is there, is there a, Gleeful sadism? No. Um, it's a funny thing. Uh, I once heard, I can't remember who once said this to me, um, but uh, they were telling me that um, comedy and tragedy are not so different. It just depends on um, uh, distance and perspective. Um, and of course, the first few times we go under the sinks or the first while that we are suffering publicly in front of the audience, um, the audience has enough distance and the recognition of the uh, aesthetic space being what it is to uh, allow it to be funny. Um, it takes us talking to them and being good to them and getting to know them and having a human interaction to decrease distance. You know, if you see somebody fall over across the street it could be hilariously funny if their bags go flying and they slip and all of the stuff, but you never see how fate bloodied up their faces when they fall across the street. Enough distance uh, is there so it can be comedic. Um, part of the speaking to the audience is to bring them closer, to pull them in so that what at first appears as a comic space um, turns very quickly into something significantly more serious. Are you saying that people watching you uh, suffer uh, uh, under the sinks uh, as funny? They laugh. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. Why would you do that? Yeah. Why would you do that? Um, well, I mean, our hope is to bridge that gap. Uh, it, it, Sorry, bridge the gap between comedy and tragedy, or yeah, um, to bridge the gap between uh, uh, a removed audience and uh, a mutual under a mutual recognition of humanity, um, that uh, through the repetition of the holding of the sink and through the continuation of the suffering, the audience goes on a journey. A journey where first they figure out rules, then they figure out a game, then they think the game is funny, then they think the game is fun, and then the big question for the piece is getting now is getting the getting them to take the journey to the point where the where the game gets past fun, and I think we were close in our twenty five minute version, but I think the longer version gets them to the point where they go past fun, and then all of a sudden the same action, the same event, the same relationship. All of a sudden, the content or the context changes. It moves from comedy very quickly 
into something more serious, something that they need to um, engage with. A tragedy that they can, a tragedy that they can stop. Not a real tragedy. Tragedies are pretty significant, but a something that they can stop. I'm going to try and say my final words. I will probably fail in saying my final words, but I'm getting really close. Okay. Now, oh, I'm conflicted right now. The first thing that I want to say is I think that the trajectory that you just described is nothing short of magnificent. I think what I'm curious about is this. We've got you on record saying that Wake for Lost Time is a mean show. Yeah. And uh, for those who haven't listened to the previous podcast, it's a 24-hour show. That means if it starts at 6 p.m., it ends the next day at 6 p.m. So... What I'm curious, I mean, I, I'm conflicted because on the one hand, you're saying that if it was a 45-minute show, say, then it would give a greater possibility for the trajectory of the arc to actually happen. Yes. The other thing is the price that you and the others pay is that not is it possible that that you are that you're just like are you okay the question is is this i mean i think i know kind of but is it art for art's sake i think it's much more in your terms than art for art's sake yeah are you, do you think that you somehow have to pay this price in order to get, in order to arrive at some kind of enlightenment for people? I mean, is there a, or, or I'll just blurt it out. Is it, are we also dealing here with some kind of either conscious or subconscious uh, masochistic, needs um it's funny i had a conversation relatively recently about that um is wake extremely mean and is kitchen sink drama extremely mean um difficult and physically demanding for the performer absolutely um do i as myself or any of my members to my knowledge uh, any of the members of the collective to my knowledge go home and uh, take pleasure in masochistic acts. I don't think it's within any of the purviews of any of our interests. People can do whatever they want, but it's not our own thing. Um, uh, this type of uh, demandingness um, seems to be what we place within the aesthetic space um, because we want an aesthetic space that is capable of change. And if you want to ask people for change, you have to put some skin in the game. That's all. If you want to ask people for change, 
you need to put some skin in the game. In other words, you've got to be willing to put it a different way, correct me if I'm wrong, if you want other people to make sacrifices, you bloody well better make sacrifices yourself. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>